the classrooms of America. There your children's lives will be shaped. Hello there. Welcome to 180 Days Podcast. I'm Karen Greenhouse, one of your hosts. I am joined by co-host Tim Pope. Say hello, Tim. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Is it morning? We don't know where we don't know when they're listening. It may not actually be morning. So just hello. How's that? Today we are super excited to have Olga Torres with us and Olga is a bilingual elementary and mathematics K through 12 educator for over 40 years. So that is impressive unto itself. Um, I brought her here because I, I was introduced to Olga as part of my work with Casio and she did a amazing webinar for us um, when we were doing our equity in education series. And it was called rehumanizing schools rights of the learner. And in that webinar, I was just so fascinated by the work that Ogle had been doing with with students and really acknowledging their rights as learners. And so I'm excited that she agreed to come onto our podcast and talk about her framework that she's developed and just how she works with students and really tries to encourage this rehumanizing of schools. So Ogle, welcome so much to our show. We are very excited to have you here. Glad to be here. And I guess my first question is maybe just to kind of get that out there is rehumanizing is something that we're hearing a lot now with the whole equity and education thing. So could you define what that means to you or how you interpret that rehumanizing of schools? Um, one of the things that um, happened with Todos and they asked me to to speak at that webinar, they wanted me to relate the rights of the learner to rehumanizing using that terminology. And it was a very easy connection because I've spent most of my teaching career working with students and doing everything possible to convince them that they're capable of anything as long as they have the support and they know that they have the right to be the best they can be. So when I heard the word rehumanizing, it, uh, Rochelle Gutierrez uses it in The Need to Humanizing Mathematics and she says that rehumanizing is a verb, and I concur. It's a verb. It's an action. And it reflects an ongoing process that requires constant vigilance, and it's maintained in context. And it's, for me, it's being in a state of discovery at all times. You're ready to discover. You're looking at what is around you. You're looking at the human element, and you're always looking for discovery. Um, not imposing but discovery. And in that process, you're interacting, you're watching, you're observing, you're questioning, but you're always learning. So the rehumanizing, you never lose sight of the humans that are around you and the specialness of each. And that's how I, that's how I um, define it for myself. Um, it is a verb. It's ongoing discovery. It's the discovery mode. So just for those that may not I haven't been in a classroom, maybe. So how might that look different from a classroom that is not, um, ex, you know, embracing this idea of rehumanizing? So what might the difference in a classroom that is and that is not embracing rehumanizing? What, what might be a key factor? Yeah, one of the distinctions I think that uh, we need to look at is, um, I mean, I can walk into a classroom and pretty much know uh, the, the, the involvement of every citizen in that community. And uh, 
when you're rehumanizing, everyone um, is active, uh, is participatory. There's talk, there's discourse, the environment shows evidence of student artifacts. The contrast to that is passive receivers of information, that uh, curriculum is being imposed on the learner, and the learner is not retrieving or activating prior knowledge. Um, it's more of a passive behavior. So we're not capitalizing on what a child or a student, an individual, brings to the learning environment or to the learning community. And in many of our classrooms, there's so much uh, constraints in our teaching that there's so many testing, there's pacing guides, there's um, curriculum that has to be done by such and such time. And so what we're doing is we're imposing an instruction on students and learners, and they're not having a chance to really uh, conceptually construct understandings. It's more rote rules and procedures. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. And I don't know if this is a linear question to ask, but I've been dying to ask it, so I'm going to. Which is, so I am a classroom teacher now, and you have, I, I, you have a fascinating professional story in terms of the choices you've made, the students you've chosen to, um, to work with over the years. How do you undo that expectation? So you have students who have been in those passive classrooms um, and have been in, enculturated in a way in terms of school culture, traditional white European school culture, into that passive mode. Um, how do you um, help motivate, engage students to come out of that expectation? I mean, one of my frustrations has been now I do te I teach high school, not younger students, so it's a, I guess a different dynamic. But that students have become to expect and actually almost fight against this desire to engage um, and to become an active part of their classroom. I think the first step is a, a, a commitment to be defiant, and um, I. I'm just going to preface uh, the answer by just telling you where it came from. When I was on a leave of absence and I wanted, and I came back to teaching, I was put in an ungraded primary. I didn't care um, that it was ungraded primary. I just wanted to teach. I wanted to go back in, into teaching. And I was going back with a principal that had been in the school that I was previously. In the school that I first started teaching, we had what was called language experience approach, which meant that we started from what children brought to us. We as teachers walked the neighborhood, got to see what children saw when they walked to school, um, got to visit their homes, got to know their family. And our curriculum was based on the student experiences. So the minute they walked into the classroom, there was something familiar about the classroom that they could relate to because it was something that they saw at home or in the neighborhood. So language experience also always uses um, students' experiences, and we take their language and we record it and we post it and we show it and we read it back. So kids are always seeing their name somewhere in the environment of the things that they contributed by what they shared. And so when I went to this ungraded primary, when I came in, I was told that the children that were being put in my ungraded primary were first graders, monolingual Spanish and second and third graders that were struggling students or discipline problems. They were all put together and they were called, and it was called an ungraded primary. I'm coming in from a leave of absence. I have four wonderful children that I'm in awe of it. And I'm looking at these children that are being seen as deficit. 
So my defiance just shut up. And I wanted to create a curriculum of instruction where children saw the worthiness of their experiences and their background. And so I got a, a, a bulletin board in the hallways of the school because we were in a portable. And I made sure that any work that the children did, or any artifacts, were posted and identified for what we were studying and who was doing uh, the work. And children were in, in investigating things that other kids weren't doing. They were more active. We were, we were manipulating with manip materials. We were constructing. Everything was visual. Um, they were in, 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 in uh, science investigations. In the mathematics, they were doing hands-on. And they were recording their numbers and operations and their strategies. Very different from what was being done in the classrooms in the school. So what happened was that children started noticing what we were posting in the hallway and they wanted to ask the kids what they were doing. And the kids began to see that they were becoming experts of their own learning and that other people were interested in what they were doing. So they now they were talking a little bit more. They became more active in the classroom. They were giving me ideas of what they would like to study. And, and it became an interactive curriculum. And kids were working in groups. I wasn't standing in front of the classroom. They were engaged. Their responsibility was to talk, to learn, and to share their thinking. So they became active constructionists. And we were working together, and they saw that their ideas were being used in my instruction. And I would use, you know, Felipe shared this, and I think this is an idea we need to investigate. Or Juan did this, said this. I would use their names, and I would make them aware that I was learning from them. And that, be, that be, began the, the culture of the classroom where kids were interactive and they saw that they, were, they had ideas that were worthy of consideration. And then what we also talked about, talking with encouraging words, talking about helping each other be the best learners they can be. And so little by little, we created the environment together. And over the years, I've been very defiant. No child should ever be disregarded or discarded. No child should ever be viewed in a deficit mode. Every child is a genius. And then I attended a gift, um, a workshop for the gifted program. And this, the speaker began with a quote from Einstein. And the quote was, uh, for just a minor adjustment, we can find the giftedness in all human beings. That quote has penetrated in my mind and in my heart. And I found that that minor adjustment isn't something that we do to someone. That minor adjustment is what we do within ourselves that allows us to discover the uniqueness of another human being. So this is why I relate so much to the word rehumanizing, is that we don't lose sight of the human beings that are in our classroom. That every decision that we make is being made so that they can discover the power of their own intellect. Language experience is always using what they say and recording it and making it visible. It's taking the invisible and making it visible and making them see what they own what they have and what they can use to become better and just give them that hope and that uh, inclination to just want to try and learn as much as possible and that their voice matters. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does answer my question. And it has me scrambling to find the uh, quote because now this would be the third thing I've heard from you that I want to make into a poster in my classroom. And, and it's, uh, it, I've looked for that direct quote, but I haven't found the direct quote, but I have found the different ways that Einstein uh, has said, and he's always um, talked about the uniqueness of human beings. 
I just, in my two minutes of Google, found a similar quote from him that says, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Yes. That is one of my favorites. Yeah. There we go. That's why we humanizing is powerful. As always, you are very inspiring, Olga. Uh, I want to go back into a classroom right now. Um, (laughs) So I guess my biggest question is, how do it's not even the students like Tim Tim was talking about how do you get these students that have been encultured into believing that learning is passive and memorization and process and because they haven't been given the experience because the teachers don't know how to create that culture and how and I know it's a big push like with the common core I'm thinking mathematics right now but the common core mathematics is you know mathematics should be problem solving and thinking but teachers are resisting it because of what you mentioned previously, our curriculum and our pacing and our, you know, we've got to cover the material, we have to get to the assessment. And so it's so much easier to just do that passive teaching. So how do we help teachers realize, I don't even know if it's teachers, is we have to change the curriculum because if they are forced to to do this curriculum that's in a specific pace, they're never going to change because the kind of learning that you're talking about takes time. You learn more, I think, and you can actually cover more, but they don't see it that way because they're programmed to do their pacing. So how do we change that overall? I mean, that is the magic question there, but. I know it's a, it's quite a venture. Um, all I can tell you is, is what I've done. And one of the things that happened to me is that I attended a workshop many moons ago, um, and it was called Math Solutions. And it taught, it put us as learners. So instead of telling us how to teach, they made us uh, investigate mathematics, and they put us in the learner mode. And I learned mathematics again, but I learned it through my own construction of understandings. And I saw that the more I did, the more decisions I made in trying to solve problems, the more confident I became in the mathematics. And the more confident I became, the more I wanted to hear how other people solve problems. And the more I heard other people solve problems, the more my thinking was validated. And it was the process of becoming a learner and learning mathematics all over again in a way that was comprehensible to me that taught me that this is what I wanted for my students. So one of the first things, and and I've dedicated my life to this, is provides teachers the opportunity to learn mathematics. This is the content that I'm working with, but in any content, to learn, to be a learner, to accept that what you know is tentative and can change at any given point as you gain new information. We have to have that disposition of change. We have to understand that change is a constant. And we can't hold on to the past because if we teach the way we were taught, then we're preparing children for the past, not for the present or for the future. So we have to be uh, reflective practitioners and we have to be action researchers and we have to have that professional development for the teachers and teachers need to see that they must be agents of change and uh, professional development has to help. 
Oh, I agree. And and I'm lucky. I'm I'm very involved, like the Dana Center, who are a couple people we're talking with. That is their approach as well. And that that's how I teach my master's math teachers that I at Drexel University. It is we're gonna learn this math from the basics so you can understand how prior knowledge and student knowledge impacts their learning. And they still fight against the culture of the school or the district that you must do this in this amount of time, move on, prepare for the test. What you're referring to, too, is also that there exists certain mindsets, and mindsets evolve over time. And you're asking them to change a mindset. And our educational system right now is in a fixed mindset. Yes. And by that, I mean, we look at our students through a deficit uh, perspective not a discovery mode, not in a rehumanizing mode. And so we have, we have labels like struggling students, um, discipline problems, or we look at students' abilities as um, just doesn't have the intelligence um, to, to achieve a certain level of academic um, success. That's a fixed mindset. And what we have to do is change to a growth mindset to believe that we can grow in our knowledge. And teachers need to have a growth mindset for that professional development. But we also have to work with the community. We have to work with the the administrators. We have to change. Um, My biggest thing is, I think that a school should be a museum of children's work. And as parents and people come into a school and they see what children are learning and they see children's writing and children's thinking and the way they're thinking about something that they didn't learn, the parents and uh, public didn't learn in their years in school, then they'll be curious about what is it that they're learning and then begin to realize how special and unique it is. And if it's related to real world applications, things happening in the real world now, and they're seeing that it's the, like the mathematics is being used as a tool to understand events in real life, then the curiosity will uh, animate them to want to learn a little bit more. Having family math nights, um, bringing the community, it's over time. The change will happen over time, but we have to be committed to making that changes. I know that I was one in a few in the, in the school, but little by little, I, I got teachers to come and visit. I got teachers to ask me questions. I got teach. I got to work with the teachers in my school. Little by little, we became a community with invested interest in our children. Um, it's just never giving up and knowing that change is going to happen, but it's going to take time. But we've got to give evidence. So when a school becomes a museum of children's work and everyone coming in leaves knowing a little bit more about themselves and about what children are learning and what the world is about, then they'll, they'll consider change. But it's something that takes time. So what was the time frame? Like we, Karen talked about the process for giving teacher buy-in and giving teachers the support they need uh, to implement this type of vision. When you implemented this vision and became an activist as a teacher, what was the time frame for getting students and families in the larger community to buy in um, to your change of paradigm? Was that was it instantaneous? Did the kids buy in right away? Or was there a process um, uh, involved? They bought into things we were doing, but they would throw out some things that they were hearing at home. And so I would take their, their comments. Like one day, they, one of the kids just said, you know, 
Mrs. Torres, why are you wasting our time with fractions? Nobody uses fractions. My tío says that fractions are useless and you're wasting our time. <laughs> and and then another uh, student stood up and said, yeah, why waste our time? Why teach us fractions? We don't need it. Now, these are third through fifth graders that are talking to me like this. <laughs> and yet they had just had an experience in fractions and uh they loved what we were doing. We were doing the fraction kit, and they were happy, and they went home. They took the fraction kit because they didn't want to stop doing what we were doing. They were recording, and they were seeing it. They were adding and subtracting fractions, and they were excited, and they wanted to do it. They took it home, and evidently, when they took it home and people saw them, they were working with fractions, they heard this uh, deficit view of mathematics, and they brought it to the classroom. So, no, every time you know we did something, they would question it by taking it home and saying, we're learning this and then they would hear the viewpoint of the people in the family and uh, so it wasn't instantaneous but one of the things that made the change happen was that even though it was contrary to their beliefs about what I was doing in the classroom what they saw was that the children's social emotional development was positive they wanted to go to school they wanted to do the things we were doing. They wanted to talk about the things they were doing in the, in the, or in the classroom because I taught all, all content areas. And that made the parents stop and think about what's happening that my child wants to go to school, that my child doesn't want to stay home when they're sick, that they had to come to the classroom and take homework home because the kids didn't want to miss anything. It's little by little. Wow, that's exciting. <laughs> little by little. So, okay, so if the, and I understand it completely because there's uh, so many people out there with bad memories and anxiety about mathematics that they definitely put that onto their their kids, you know, their own fears of math get put onto the kids and that comes to the school. So then did you ever do anything to bring the parents in and, and maybe change their mindset? So you, I know you talked about math nights, um, which are very positive, but I would imagine it's not just changing the culture in your classroom. You, you're really trying to change the culture of mathematics at the home as well. Yes. And um, that's when I started to think about uh, the school being a museum of children's work where people would come in and leave knowing a little bit more than they did before. And so the question about the fractions, I took that as a challenge and a sense of urgency and put kids through experiences where fractions were used in the real world. And they were in awe of where fractions were in every place in their world and in their homes. But then I also took it to a historical perspective where we talked about fractions and uh, we have a constitution and it was based on a three-fifths uh, fraction. And uh, when you study this and when the kids studied and saw that the southern states ratified the Constitution simply because they were going to have better representation because of the three-fifth three value of slaves, then that put fractions into a whole new dimension. But it also got children interested in history. And then they also saw the inequities and the social injustices in history in establishing our, our government. So now the kids are interested in history. Now they're looking at the world through the lens of mathematics, and they're looking at fractions, and they're seeing that fractions were very important, are very important in our lives. So it's those little things that you do, but you don't lose sight, you don't ignore it, you address it, but you address it in the most powerful way you can to make it relevant. If you believe in what you're doing, then you will have the, you will make decisions that will make the learning relevant. 
And that's another issue in education is learning has to be relevant. Cognition has to be constructed in the mind of the human that is learning. You can't impose it. You can't just teach it to them. It has to be constructed. There are just some things that cannot be taught by talent. They have to be constructed. And they have to be in the heart and the mind of the learner. And there's a lot in mathematics that, especially at the intermediate grades, where the invisible has to be made visible. It is, it is the transition from additive to multiplicative thinking. It's making children accountable because they're becoming social being. It matters to them whether they belong or are accepted in their group. There's so much happening to that human that you have to consider that all the dimensions of human development is just not teaching a content. It's about helping a student discover the power of his own intellect and being responsible and accountable for the choices and decisions they're making as social beings and as in their academic endeavors. It's, it's complex, and that's what we as teachers and parents and public administrators, we have to understand we're dealing with the human element. And trust is key to that, because we as humans need to trust in where we are because we're interdependent. We can't function alone. We function in collaboration and interaction with others. We're interdependent. And from interdependence, we become independent. I really love the, um, I mean, we're talking about math, but this is not really about math. Um, it's, and I, I want to get into your um, rights of the learner. And I think this might be a nice segue. You, I mean, I love the, how you brought the fractions into the history and the three fifths. And that conversation was probably one that a lot of teachers would avoid because of the, you know, the racism and all that stuff. And oh, we shouldn't talk about that with students. But I think that leads really nicely into your rights of the learner where, um, and I'm going to have you discuss that in a minute, but one of them is you should feel safe and respected. And it's okay that we have these conversations and, and it's okay that they might cause, um, you know, confusion and scariness, but that's part of learning is we have to talk about these things that are out there. So the three-fifths of a person, of a slave, those types of conversations, I think a lot of teachers would be afraid to have that. So how do you create that classroom culture? And that leads right into your rights of the learner, which I think is an amazing um, framework for any teacher, no matter what you're teaching to have. So if you want to kind of address what I'm talking about, and we'll post this, by the way, on the website for anyone who is interested. I think one of the things that, that was really important to me, too, when my students came in, I learned from their uh, ungraded primary how important it was for children to have these rights. And they would ask me certain things, like they would ask, can I use the calculator to solve this problem? And I would ask him, would that be helpful to you? And they would say, well, I think so, yes. And I go, then that's your right. It's your right to do and, and, and use whatever is going to help you think through and work your way out of confusion. So please do it. And then they, they would ask me other questions, and I would say, is that going to help you? That's your right. Then please do it. So as I got into the practice of just saying, that's your right, that's your right, because they needed to do it. They were asking me what uh, tools they could use to be able to function and resolve. And I would just say, that's your right. That's your right. And um, little by little, they would say, I'm, I'm confused. And I would just say, okay, that means the brain's trying to get some information from you. So what do you need to have? What do you need to ask? What, what, what do you? What's necessary? And they would say, I don't know. And I go, well, why don't you observe and see what others are doing and see if that helps you? They would 
they would help me help them uh, become more interdependent and independent. So the rights of the learners came as I would ask him, what were your experiences as a learner? What conditions supported your learning? And I would record them and I would post them in the environment and I would make sure that every child's name was up on the conditions for learning so everyone had a voice in negotiating the conditions for learning. And as we kept negotiating and then looking for uh, synonyms that uh, identify the, the qualities of a good partner, we posted that up there too. And everything was coming from the students and I was posting them so they could see that what I was asking was relevant and was useful for the whole class. And when we did a problem solving experience or any experience, I would ask him, are the qualities or are the conditions in effect? Can you pick one condition that happened while we were studying? And they would read each other's conditions. So when the rights of the learners emerged, um, I also introduced them to the fact that we're citizens of the world and uh, we have the Declaration of Human Rights and we have the children's rights. And so I would also read them some of the rights from there so they understood that the rights that I had for them wasn't something that Mrs. Torres invented. These are rights that are for all citizens in a community. So one of the first rights was just to, one of the first things that the kids always had when I gave them a problem solving experience is that they, they weren't sure about exactly what they had to do. So they go through confusion. So one of the first rights is, is just that idea, you have the right to be confused. Confusion is part of the learning process. And um, confusion is part of learning. Confusion helps you accommodate new information. It helps you sort through your toolbox of knowledge and select tools and ideas that are most useful to you. And now we have brain research that talks about the fact that disequilibrium is really an opportunity for the brain to make new connections and, and create an expansive network of ideas that you can activate and retrieve. So you want children to know that confusion is part of learning. Once children understand that confusion is part of learning and they're responsible for working their way out of confusion, then they understand why it's important to be able to ask questions, to listen to the thinking of others, understand how discourse is very powerful. The second right is you have the right to make mistakes. I learned this with Shana. When I asked, I asked um, when I went back to a classroom, I, I was a math resource teacher for seven years working in, in different schools and one in specific. And um, when I went back to the classroom, I wanted all the kids that were being pulled out of the classroom for discipline problems um, to be put in my classroom. I wanted to work with those kids, but I, the only way I could do it was to have a multi-age classroom of third through fifth graders. So when I asked them to identify the conditions we generated, the kids knew that they had rights. And um, Shana was one of the students that I had asked to be put in my classroom, and she was very shy and timid. And this day, she was working on an activity, and um, it's how many were eaten, and there's boxes, and there's cubes in the boxes, and we pretend that they were candies. And they had to figure out how many candies were in the box. And what the task required was unit iteration of area. Uh, that's one thing that is very confusing for kids. You know, they know that length times width, but they don't understand that there's a unit of measure that composes. It's two-dimensional. So in that investigation, she was working with um, unit iteration and then drawing the box, drawing the array and labeling it and then figuring out how many were candies were eaten if seven candies were still in the box. And so when I sat down, um, I hear her. She goes, oh, I made a mistake. So I sat down next to her and I go, how do you know you made a mistake? And she was very clear. She goes, oh, I, I put the cubes in and, I, I, and I, I could figure out that it was uh, so much uh, 
cubes. My my array was three times nine, and uh, I figured it all out, and I got my answer. But then I forgot to subtract the number of candy that were in the boxes. She was very clear in her explanation, and she was very aware of what she was doing. She was very aware of what she was adding and subtracting and multiplying. And when she finished her explanation, I just said to her, "Wow, Shana." That mistake is a celebration. You were so clear about what you were doing. You caught something that didn't make sense and you corrected it. That's a celebration. And she just kind of smiled. And then I hear Jose Miguel, because I'm sitting at the table with a group of kids and I'm just talking to Shana. And then Jose Miguel says to me, Mrs. Torres, I had a celebration too. He didn't say I made a mistake. He said I had a celebration too. And that was the day that I learned to call mistakes celebrations. And I believed in that. And I brought out, again, Einstein, you know, he says, you know, if you haven't made a mistake, then you haven't learned anything new. So that went up in the, on the walls. And there were books on, on uh, mistakes. And then I started looking at things that have happened that were mistakes. And really, they were just uh, redirections. And so we looked at mistakes as celebrations. And so when the kids would share their strategies in problem solving, they would volunteer to share their, their celebrations. They wouldn't call them mistakes. They would call their celebrations. And the question was always, what do you know now that you didn't know before? And then we would just say, aren't you lucky you made that mistake? So kids started seeing the advantage of a mistake. And again, brain research talks about there is more growth in the brain when someone makes a mistake. But the growth happens because you give children the right to confront the mistake redirect their attention, and then understand what the mistake was about. That is powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful because teachers are so afraid to make mistakes or not know the answer to a question a student might have so they don't let them talk. And it's, you know, it's okay to admit in front of your students, I, you know, I don't know, or, or I made a mistake. What, what can we do to figure it out? They also need to have that, that idea that a mistake is a celebration that can help their students learn. Yes. And then I tend to use history a lot because I, I promote a democratic community. So I, it's important that children become uh, autonomous. And uh, one of the things that I tell them that even the founding fathers knew that mistakes were part of life, that change was constant. And they created the amendments to the Constitution. And the amendments to the Constitution is a way of correcting a mistake. So even the Constitution gives us a reason why mistakes are important. And then you look at the amendments and you look at what was happening and why it was amended and you realize how important it is to look at situations and know that change happens as we gain more and more information. So there's, that's their light. Um, uh, there's just so many things that you can do just with mistakes that you just really, <laughs> it's, it's powerful. So kids feel safe making mistakes. They feel safe being uh, confused. And keep in mind, always, emotions control how much you're going to learn. That's part of the brain research as well. And the human being will always fight for survival. So if you create any situation in the classroom that causes anxiety, the anxiety will take over. And there's not going to be any learning going to be taking place. So one of the things we have to keep in mind is how do we create a culture which kids feel safe in their learning? And that these natural obstacles are exactly that, natural obstacles of learning. I just, I just want to throw in a pitch um, in terms of how do you not only consider mistakes celebrations, but actually as a teacher, use it to promote instruction. Now, this is going to be a very math-centered recommendation. Um, but there is the book that I'm sure we can put in the notes on the five practices for orchestrating math discourse. 
which gives very concrete directions to not only in terms of empowering the student, but you can actually use those mistakes and use it to construct a meaningful conversation, a meaningful discourse that actually helps promote and get you as a teacher, um, help your students achieve the learning goals for which you're uh, aspiring in a class. Yes, yes. And one of the most important things is when you use a mistake as a teaching avenue, then children feel pride and feel fortunate in, in knowing that they, they had that mistake and, and then they see where it could be taken into the mathematics learning. Because uh, I, I use the mistakes uh, that children uh, make in mathematics all the time and they're empowered. And, but we also explain, what is it? We become more explicit. What is it that made that mistake? What was the misunderstanding? What was the misinformation? So what do we need to know now? Let's be more explicit. And that is why the third right comes into play, because then you ask him, you have the right to do and represent only what makes sense to you. And when they represent their thinking, then I get to see what is it that they understand and what is it that I need to be more clear about? What is it that we need to investigate? What mistakes are happening here? How did that happen? How do I alter my instruction? And how do I use it as a vehicle of instruction? Rehumanizing is never losing sight of learning. You're always discovering and you're learning. You just never lose sight. Well, and it's, ama- it's amazing when you, do that, when you do it that way that, uh, I mean, I have often, at least once a week, find a student who then represents the mathematics in a way that's correct and authentic, but a way I'd never thought of. Yes, there's been many a times where I'm in awe and I think about, I never learn like this. <laughs> Kids know more of our math than me. And then to say that out loud to the student and let, and give mm-hmm. them that moment of being empowered. Yes. Like, you know, exactly. I, yes. that's actually correct. I tell the, I tell my students all the time. And um, when I ask you a question, it doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. I think sometimes we get into, to what Karen was talking about. Students get into this mode that if you answer and I ask you a question, it means you were wrong. Um, and so I feel like, I tell my kids all the time, it's not that you're necessarily wrong. I just need to understand what you said <laughs> um, because you may very well be entirely correct and promoted the conversation. It's just not the way that I had approached the mathematics myself. And I think uh, that's a very important point, Tim, because one of the things that I learned too, and uh, because I needed to make it a safe haven for my students, my students need to discover who they were as learners. And um, thinking about the the discovery I told them, you're going to be in a classroom. When you come into this classroom and you walk through that door, you're walking into a new beginning. And that beginning is that we're going to do everything possible for you to be the best learner you can be. But I need your help. I need you to tell me what conditions will help you be the best learner you can be. And in that point, the discovery, I need to discover you. So if I'm going to discover you, I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions. So when I'm asking you questions, it's because I want to know who you are. I want to know what I can do to allow you to be the best learner you can be. So get ready. I'm going to be asking questions. So the climate of questioning is it becomes part of just the natural way of interacting in the classroom. So the third right is is you have the right to do and represent only what makes sense to you. So from the start, um, there's a definition of uh, education, and it says uh, uh the root meaning of education is to draw children's potential and make them more than what they were. If you look through the lens of mathematics, making more, you first have to know the equality. There has to exist an equality before you can find out how much more. In teaching and working with students, if I want to make more, then I first have to know what is it, what's the foundational understanding that they're bringing to me that I can build on. 
And the only way I can do that is giving them the right to do and represent only what makes sense, which means they have to draw from their experiences, activate prior knowledge, and represent it. And they have to show me what tools do they have to represent? Do they draw pictures? Do they do they use numbers and operations? What is it that they have to do to represent their thinking? And that gives me inclinations and directions in my instruction of what I need to do. So that's why language experience for me is very powerful. The more they see me take their language and represent it with words and numbers, the more they will know that these are tools for representing their ideas. And then I get to see if it's making sense to them or not. But they're empowered. They're making decisions. And problem solving, you know, we use the word problem solving um, just very lucid. But for me, problem solving is very direct. Problem solving means you have to make decisions and you have to work with the results of those decisions. Problem solving requires decision making. It's not about just giving a kid a worksheet with problems and they problem solve through following rules. No. Problem solving means that you are given a situation that you don't have a direct answer to and you're going to have to activate prior knowledge and you're going to have to make some decisions about the direction you're going to take to solve that problem. Problem solving requires decision making. And when children make decisions and work off the decisions, the outcomes of those decisions, they begin to trust in what they know. They begin to trust in what they, the results they come up with, and they begin to consider the implications and the consequences of those results. They're thinking. That's the kind of citizens we want. We want citizens that are reflective and are aware of what the decisions uh, created. So that's the third right. You have the right to do and represent only what makes sense to you. Now, if I want them to do that, then the fourth right is complementary to that. The fourth right deals with the classroom culture. The fourth right is you have the right to engage in conversations that will allow you to ask questions, share ideas, and listen to the thinking of others to support your thinking. Learning is a social process. That fourth right honors all the different ways that children solve problems, their ideas, how important it is to have discourse and sharing ideas, because every child is at a different point of learning. Vygotsky calls it the zone of proximal development. In second language learning, I call it um, language acquisition, a silent period, where the student isn't saying anything, but the student is listening and listening to what others are saying, and they connect when someone says something that they were thinking but didn't have the words or the representation for it, and they're validated. And as kids listen and their ideas are validated, they become a little bit more confident. They're more willing to represent their thinking because they realize that their thinking was someone else's thinking as well. So one of the things that is important is that they know that it's you have the right to ask a question. You have the right to listen. You have the right to discuss with someone else your ideas. Talking is necessary. So they, they have to understand that that's a right. And having discourse and having children share and their the way of solving problems, the way they're thinking, having shared writing experiences where we generalize together as a class, all that comes into play because every child is at a different place and making connections. And that zone of proximal development is if the opportunity to hear and see that can validate, then a child becomes more confident and will trust more in others and in themselves as well. And you're creating that culture that you feel safe and you know you have that sense of hope that you will be able to attain and be the best that you can be in learning. 
And the fifth right, it's one of the challenging rights that teachers really have to know who they are as teachers and what belief systems they have. Because the fifth right says, you have the right to feel safe and respected. It is your responsibility to take action and leverage for the social and emotional conditions that will support your learning. The reason that I went into that multi-age classroom was because some children were being discarded and disregarded and being sent out of the classroom. And the theory was, teach the kids that want to learn and the ones that don't, eliminate them. No, every child matters. No child should be disregarded or discarded. And my concern was, what were the kids learning that were staying in the classroom that some people can be disregarded and discarded? If something happened in the classroom that caused that behavior, then shouldn't the class be the class to solve the problem and work together? It's not about the teacher disciplining because the teacher disciplining has control and is also communicating a bias and a prejudice towards certain behaviors and towards certain children. So now the child has not only misbehaved, but now there's an attitude and a value system that's being imposed on that child, and other kids are getting it because that's the way the teacher is disciplining the child. It's, it's hazardous to have one person be responsible for disciplining, and it becomes a public affair. Now, I remember I told you I'm very defiant, so it challenges conventional wisdom. But I, I will challenge the adult before I ever challenge the integrity of a child. So the fifth right, children learn to be accountable. And they learn that they need to tell others that when something is happening, it's being disrespectful, it's not helping in their learning, they have to say, you know what, that's not helping my learning. That's not a condition that, that, that we have here in the classroom. Could you not do that? They have the right to warn that person twice. Third time, class agenda. Now it's written in the class agenda, class meeting. The infraction or the transgression, who's bringing it, who caused it, and then we come as a class and we meet and all of us talk about it and everyone sees the emotional impact that the decision had on another person's learning. And it's discussed, it's resolved, and everyone there has learned the norms of interaction. Everyone there sees the impact of the emotional uh outlook of how we behave in the classroom. Everyone is accountable. No outcome can be punitive. What I really appreciate about the way you worded the last one is it's to feel safe and respected. I, I think every teacher would agree with that assessment. Um, but that in the follow-up with it, you put some onus on the student uh, to be owners of their instructional experience. It is your responsibility to take action and leverage for the conditions that will support your learning. Um, I really, uh, in, the, in the way you just articulated it, in terms of giving students um, not only the permission, but the responsibility um, to call that out and be an active part of their classroom community, I think is an empowering way to articulate that value. And there's, an, there's another aspect of it. I know the rights are uh, isolated right now, but um, you also have to have a view of history and culture. And one of the things that children learn very early that silence um, is a form of, of consent. And uh, I have uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And children investigate um, inferior and consent and, and they look for synonyms and they reword that, that quote and they realize that silence is a form of consent. And then we study events in history, especially the Holocaust, were silence. People did not say what they needed to say and the damage and the hurt that was caused. And that 
when you're silent, you give up your rights. So there's there's so much involved in in the rights of the learner, and it's based on the philosophy of the teacher and what kind of a culture are you developing in the classroom. And for me, I don't want kids to learn things in isolation. I want them to learn in orchestration. I want them to understand that these are the way we survive and exist in a community, that there are decisions we have to make, and each of us has a, has a responsibility. It, is, it all goes with voting, too. Uh, we, we also investigated that, so they realized that one vote matters because you're not one person. You're one out of 100 in a population of, let's say, 250 million. It matters if you don't. So we, we take the math and we put it into other content areas so they understand that mathematics is a way we become very reflective and relational. And we understand that our decisions have tremendous impact, not only on us, but on the, on the culture and on the world around us. So that kids are learning accountability, not just in the classroom, but in life. So that you are promoting a citizenship of people that are willing to listen to varying viewpoints see the strengths and weaknesses of their ideas because they're listening to other viewpoints. Isn't that what we want for citizens in our society? To be open to ideas, not stuck in their ways, but open to change and understand that the world is changing and we have to change with it. Each of us needs to identify what is it that we believe in? What's the vision of the kind of, of citizen we're promoting in our de the decisions that we make every day? Because the outcome is the students, they will be the citizens of the future. I want citizens that care. I want citizens that are critical in their thinking. I want citizens that are aware of the environment. I want citizens that know that global warming is complex and all of us contribute to that, that there's a change in our world, that we matter, everyone matters. And Martin Luther King's quote, I have a dream that my, one day my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I tell my students, I want to know the content of their character. That's who I want to know. And that's why I'm going to ask all the questions. And that's why they have the rights. The rights are there for them so that they can be the best they can be. And they have to leverage. They have to learn to leverage. They can't be quiet. So I have just a quick question. I mean, we're, I'm looking at our time here. But a lot of this, you are an amazing teacher and person. And it would be incredible if all teachers approach their classroom and their students this way because it would change so much. But... That to me seems to be the big uh, pitfall is there are teachers that are not going to embrace this rights of the learner because it's noisy and it's, you know, it's confusing and it might not feel safe to them because their students are asking them questions or are arguing. So how do we, it seems that the teacher is at the, the, the heart of this, creating that culture in their own classroom. How do we help teachers? do that, who are afraid of that. Because I know from my teaching experience, I was taught that a quiet classroom is a good classroom. If your principal comes in and everyone's quiet, you get a good observation. So that's a, a mindset that I think a lot of teachers still have. So how do we change the teachers? Because it's really starting with them and them creating their, cl their classroom culture. I think that th that is one of the, the cautions that I have. Um, the rights of the learners evolved as I evolved, as I be began to become more confident in what I was doing, and a lot came because of what I was doing in mathematics. The math wasn't my stronghold. I could teach language, I could teach any content area, but math wasn't my stronghold. And it was because I took a subject that wasn't, I wasn't safe in. 
And I started to learn again and realized that I, I, I was able to do the mathematics. I was able, I realized that I, I could do mathematics. Then all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, I want this to happen to, with my students. Each teacher has to have a commitment to make learning uh, valuable and respectful to students. How they start is just by wanting to make that change. And one of the best ways is just to first begin to ask children, what conditions help you learn? Do you, do you create mathematical tasks or do you create tasks that allow children to engage in conversations? Look at the, look at the tasks. Can children talk about the conditions that help them be the best learners they could be? It's starting little and, and then learning to trust because the questions I pose with my students and the challenges of being a uh, um, challenging just conventional wisdom help me learn to trust in my students and as I learn to trust in them I learn to trust in myself more and the more we trusted in each other the more I was willing to take more risk it's it's an invitation to be a change agent and to think about what is it that our citizens need and am I contributing to that in my instruction and I think that we just need teacher support as well. We need to have professional development. And you got to start with the people that want to make the changes. As they become proficient, then others will want to come into their classroom. And they will learn. And they'll do little by little. First, you have to take the steps to make a change. And then you have to learn to trust in the children and ask them. Make them partners in your learning. Once you learn to trust children, you have the power to change. And I think there's something to be said for teachers seeing it in practice. Um, I, yes. I'm curious, like in your experience, um, when you came to your school, when you went back to education and started implementing some of these changes in paradigm, were other teachers at the school, as they saw the results you were getting, as they saw the artifacts on the walls, as they saw the students get excited about their learning, did that serve to motivate and engage those teachers in looking for how they can implement and change their paradigm? Yes. And as a matter of fact, the principal of the school had attended some of my workshops. And so she was very uh, supportive, but she also respected that every teacher was at a different level of acquisition of learning. And so um, we did a lot of uh, staff development where we shared what we were teaching but um, that was another thing, and, and we posted uh, children's work, so we all got to see each other's and what we were doing. And it does become interactive, and they, there were some teachers that would have um, their lunchtime, they would come in and just sit and observe what I was doing in the classroom. That was something else that also affected my students. They saw that people were coming, and I told my students, I'm not going to speak for you, you're going to speak for yourself, you're the expert of your own learning, so the teachers that come and watch us work together, they're going to be asking questions, so be prepared for to answer these questions. So the kids knew when people came in to observe the classroom, you know, there were many times where people just say, yeah, is she for real, you know? And so they would come and see if it, what I was advocating was really in practice, and, and they saw that it was. And uh, it's little, it's just little steps you take, but eventually they become gigantic. Yes, that's a beautiful analogy. Think about it, just a little drop. You drop it in, in, in a, a drop of water, and then the concentric circles. It's like that, that ripple effect. And, and you start little. That's a beautiful analogy. That's our advice, everyone. Start little. Change one little thing and then grow from there. 
I don't know. We just got out of rainy season down here in Bogota. I don't like to think. I don't like to think of drops of water at the moment. <laughs> I'm thinking about a bucket. <laughs> well, I'm looking at our time, and we are coming to the end of our hour. And again, I still am just in awe of you, Olga. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of your amazing experiences and insight. And we are going to definitely post. Um, links and the rights of the learner, just so anyone who's interested can have those out there written out. But thank you so much for joining us. It was amazing. And I enjoyed spending my morning with listening to you. Your passion is inspirational. And I was already impressed. And then you threw out the Vygotsky reference. And I'm like, okay, then you just went up two steps higher in my, in the, in the, in my esteem. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your wisdom and experience. It's been uh, phenomenal. Thank you for allowing me to think out loud. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, as always, you can find us at our website, 180days.education. And that's where our episodes are. Please be sure to subscribe. You'll get our monthly newsletter. And we hope to hear you again or see you again on another episode. Uh, thank you. Thank you. There will always be those who scoff at intellectual, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more than